bipolar disorder is not what it used to be. And if your practice is in need of a makeover, tune in. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Last month, we went to the International Society of Bipolar Disorders Conference in Chicago. That's right, Chicago. It was the first time the group has met in person since the pandemic. We even got to meet a few of our podcast listeners there, which was certainly one of the highlights. This conference is different from most other psych conferences in at least one way. Patients are invited in and valued for their wisdom of their lived experience. And patients presented at many of the talks, along with an eclectic mix of researchers, clinicians, and psychotherapists. Topics ran the gamut from organoids, a new technology that uses pluripotent stem cells to study the pathophysiology of disease and discover new treatments, all the way to transcranial infrared laser stimulation, a low-dose laser therapy that is used in wound healing and was repurposed there in a small study to boost cognition in bipolar disorder. There was even a paper that used the Rorschach, aka the inkblot test, to distinguish bipolar disorder from unipolar disorder, surprisingly with some success there. But that is not what this podcast is about. We're going to look at the big picture. Researchers are talking about ideas that weren't even on the table when many of us completed our training. Probiotics, dark therapy, and psychedelics. Today, we'll look at which of them are ready for practice in 2023 in part one of our series on how to change the way you treat bipolar, starting with how to diagnose it. But first, a CME quiz for this podcast. Earn CME credits through the link in the show notes. What is the rate of unrecognized bipolar disorder in patients with treatment-resistant depression? A. 20-30%. B. 30-40%. C. 40-60%. D. 80%. We'll start with the bottom line. If you regularly screen for bipolar disorder, you'll pick it up in 30 to 50% of your depressed patients. And two new screening instruments, the Rapid Mood Screener and Bipolarity Index, will help you get there. Bipolar disorder is easy to miss. And if you aren't screening for it in your practice, you ought to start doing so. After all, the PDR recommends screening for bipolar before starting an antidepressant. The most popular screening instrument is the Mood Disorder Questionnaire, developed in the 1990s by the late Robert Hirschfeld. It's a good place to start, but it does a much better job at picking up on bipolar 1 than bipolar 2. And about 70% of people with bipolar disorder have the type 2, which is milder in its hypomanias, 
but more prominent in its depressions. Two scales that detect both bipolar 1 and 2 are the Bipolar Spectrum Diagnostic Scale, brought to us by Nasir Gami, Ronald Pies, and colleagues, and the Hypomanic Checklist 32, from the man who first proposed the bipolar versus unipolar dichotomy, Jules Angst. Finally, there's the Sydney Bipolar Screener. This is a novel scale developed by Gordon Parker, who first published the practice-ready version in the November 2021 issue of the Carlat Report. The Sydney screener selected only the symptoms that distinguished bipolar depression from unipolar depression. So it's more in line with what we're trying to do in everyday practice, separating bipolar from unipolar in depressed patients, and it works well for both bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. If you're vigorously writing down all these scales, you can pause. Dr. Aiken keeps them all on his website, moodtreatmentcenter.com forward slash measurement. Try them out and choose the one that best fits your practice, as they all have fairly similar statistical accuracy. But they also suffer from the same drawback. These are symptom checklists. And that brings us what is new in 2023. Speakers at the conference recommended newer screening instruments that look not just at symptoms, but also signs of bipolar. Symptoms can be slippery. I mean, who hasn't had racing thoughts or high energy? Signs are more concrete, and the top four that ground a bipolar disorder diagnosis are 1. Age of onset, typically between 15 to 20 for bipolar. 2. Recurrence. Bipolar is more likely than unipolar to have highly recurrent depression. 3. Treatment response. Antidepressant-induced mania actually counts towards the bipolar diagnosis in DSM-5, but it's rare to see it in practice. More often, people with bipolar disorder just say that their mood got worse on an antidepressant, more anxious, wired, agitated, or even more depressed. And finally, four, family history. Newer screening instruments that capture those kinds of signs are much more accurate than the older symptomatic ones, with sensitivities and specificities in the 0.8 to 0.9 range. At the conference, speakers recommended the Rapid Mood Screener, developed by Roger McIntyre and colleagues, and the Bipolarity Index, created in 2004 by Gary Sachs and colleagues, and later validated at my own clinic in North Carolina, among other international cities. The Rapid Mood Screener is the easiest of the two. It consists of six yes-or-no questions that the patient can answer in two minutes before their first visit. Here they are. 1. Have there been at least six different periods of time, at least two weeks, when you felt deeply depressed? 2. Did you have problems with depression before the age of 18? 3. Have you ever had to stop or change your antidepressant because it made you feel irritable or hyper? 4. Have you ever had a period of at least one week during which you were more talkative than normal with thoughts racing in your head? 5. Have you ever had a period of at least one week during which you felt any of the following? Unusually happy, unusually outgoing, or unusually energetic? And 6. Have you ever had a period of at least one week during which you needed much less sleep than usual? The other one is designed to be completed by the clinician, the Bipolarity Index, 
during an interview. And that's important because all of the others are just screening instruments. You can't make the diagnosis by screening for it. You have to have a solid interview. I view the bipolarity index as a teaching tool. It only takes up a page, but it's a thorough list of 50 signs and symptoms of bipolar disorder, including postpartum mood episodes and atypical depression. Each one is given a score based on how significant it is. And in the end, it gives you a score from 0 to 100, a single number that tells you how close your patient comes to the classic textbook case of bipolar. If you use the rapid mood screener, we recommend a slight modification to the original. Here's why. You might have noticed that the rapid mood screen asks for a week of symptoms. That's because it was developed through a grant by AbbVie, and their bipolar medication is only licensed for bipolar 1 disorder, cariprazine, Vralar. The company didn't want to run afoul of the FDA by creating a rating scale that would detect bipolar 2, so they intentionally limited the reach of this scale by requiring the manic symptoms to last at least a week, just as they do in the DSM-5 criteria for mania. In my own new patient paperwork, I include the rapid mood screener, but I changed from one week to four days, since four is the cutoff for hypomania. Screening is just the first step. To diagnose bipolar disorder, you need to use a DSM-based interview, but the official structured interviews, like the SCID and the MINI, are costly. But don't let that hold you back. All they do is translate the DSM criteria into everyday language. And the language that works in New York City or Bethesda, Maryland, where these instruments tend to be developed, may not work best for your population. Think globally, but act locally. Write the questions the way your patients will understand them. That's what Janice Eglund and Abraham Hostetter did when they traveled to a rural Amish community to study the genetics of mood disorders. For the Amish, manic behaviors are colored by the pre-industrial society that they live in, where the most common signs of mania are racing a horse and buggy too fast, buying machinery or worldly items, using the public telephone excessively, and, my favorite, planning vacations during the wrong season. Textbooks tell us that the most common behavioral signs in manic states is cleaning the house all night. But even that one is out of date. It comes from a time when stores were closed and neighbors closed their doors at night. Today, people with mania have 24-7 access to social media and online shopping. And you're likely to see mania show up as lengthy, rambling texts and eBay binges. One challenge with a DSM-based interview is that most manic symptoms happen during depression, as in mixed features. The DSM only tells you how those manic symptoms look when they appear on their own. Ask the DSM what mixed features looks like, and the book will guide you to read the depression criteria. Read the manic criteria, and then close your eyes and imagine the two overlapping. You know, like when your patient is talking fast and slow at the same time, when they are bursting with joyous creativity and miserably depressed at the same time. Euphoric but unable to experience pleasure, up all night with sparkling energy and yet somehow sleeping excessively at the same time. 
This would be like a kindergarten teacher teaching kids the color green by showing them yellow and blue and asking them to imagine the two overlapping. That teacher would not last long, but the DSM committee has been doing this since 1980. In 2010, I asked Hagapa Kiskel if there was a good rating scale for mixed states. He said, there is not, so go make up your own. I took him up on that, and I translated the DSM criteria for mania into their mixed equivalents, based on the works of Kukopoulos and others, as well as my own experience. I published it a few years ago in the Depression and Bipolar Workbook, and we'll end with that. I'm going to walk you through each of the DSM criteria and show you how it looks in pure mania or hypomania and in mixed states, also called mixed features, starting with elevated mood. Now, in pure mania, that's going to be euphoric, excited, giddy, good-humored. They might have a spiritual sense of connection to others in nature. That might turn a little irritable or impatient, but it mostly is a bright, sunny feeling. But what does euphoria look like in someone who's depressed? It's kind of a contradiction, and i got to say I've never seen it. What I do see in mixed mania is that they're just more labile. Their emotions are swinging rapidly from irritable to sad to anxious to despairing to sometimes, but very rare, giddy and euphoric. Next is elevated energy, which many think is the prime symptom of mania. So it's one you want to focus on. You want to ask patients not just if they've felt high energy, but have they had an uncomfortable sense of high energy that might even feel anxious to them. In pure hypomania or mania, elevated energy looks the way you'd expect. They're more motivated, more driven, and productive. It's a good feeling. In mixed mania, it's an uncomfortable, anxious energy that feels wired, restless, like they're crawling out of their skin. And next is irritability. This one looks the same basically in pure and mixed mania. Impatient, quick to anger, starting arguments or isolating to avoid fights. There's often a mild paranoid sense that people have it out for me, and the patient is quickly to cut off relationships or split others into good and bad. Next is increased confidence. This is one of my favorite ones because it's a paradox across the board. I mean, most people with psychiatric disorders suffer from very low self-confidence. So how do you get this one in an interview? You have to look more for confident behaviors than confident feelings. So in pure hypomania, the person's going to act with an increased certainty about their own ideas or abilities. And that high certitude is going to lead to stubborn arguments. They're going to be more optimistic, feel more self-important and put themselves above others, talk over others. They're more arrogant and they're going to ignore the risks of their actions. Like a patient whom I started an antidepressant on and she came back and said, Dr. Aiken, I feel great. I don't worry anymore. Just one thing, I don't care whether or not I go to class. Here's how that increased confidence is going to look in a mixed mania. They're not going to feel confident at all because they're also depressed. So what it looks like in the way they come across, and often the relatives will be the ones to give you this information, they're going to come across as demanding, intimidating, or overly stubborn. 
instead of depressive self-doubt, they have an undue certainty about their own beliefs, leading to lots of arguments. Most depressed patients feel bad, but they don't demand much attention because they have an inner sense of worthlessness, and they don't put their needs first, which is often a problem. But talk to the relatives of someone with mixed depression, and you'll find that they're lording it over them, domineering the house with constant demandingness. Next is decreased need for sleep. And this one is also a paradox because most patients don't identify with that language, whether they're in a mixed or a pure mania. These patients intuitively know that they would feel better if they just got more sleep. Most manic people will beg you for sleeping pills. They just want to get to sleep to turn their mind off. So rather than a decreased need for sleep, a better way to ask for it is if they ever just weren't able to sleep and didn't sleep much, but still kept going. They didn't crash, in other words, during the day. So here's how it looks in pure mania. They'll be sleeping less than usual, usually less than six hours at night, while still carrying on their usual activities. In mixed mania, it looks similar, but feels much worse, in part because these patients just have so much anxiety. So their desperation to get to sleep is even more charged. Their sleep also tends to be more random. They might have nights where they oversleep, hypersomnia, and times where they don't sleep at all. Their sleep may be reversed, which means they're up all night and asleep during the day, or they sleep at random intervals. One thing you'll notice in mixed states is that sometimes the manic symptoms are more prominent in the evening. It's like that dopamine is charging them up, and the depressive, slowed-down, negative-thinking symptoms are more prominent in the morning. They might even be totally separated in the two parts of the day, but that would still be called a mixed state because they're overlapping within a short time period. And following on is rapid or pressured speech. Here's how it looks in a pure mania. They have rapid, loud, interrupting, and talking over people. They are difficult to follow. And here's how it looks in mixed states. Their speech is often rapid or loud, but what is more apparent is the urgent emotional tone of their desperation. And moving on to racing thoughts. In pure mania, you'll notice they have lots of ideas, mental clarity, or multiple trains of thought that are really hard to follow. And in mixed states, that presents as their mind is crowded with depressive or anxious thoughts. They imagine worst-case scenarios. Patients often complain that they can't shut their minds off, especially at night. Next is distractibility. In pure mania, they change tasks frequently and their thoughts shift from topic to topic. They are easily distracted by external stimuli, so they might suddenly start talking about something else they notice across the room in the middle of a conversation. So this distractibility can be internal in their thinking, or it can be external in jumping from thing to thing in their tasks. It is somewhat similar in mixed mania. In there, they'll shift tasks in a more directionless manner, though. It's kind of like they go in circles. They are disorganized in their behavior and their thinking. For example, a person in mania might rearrange the whole house, and it looks wonderful. It looks like a designer did it. I've seen people in mixed mania take all the furniture 
and move it from one room to another so it's all stacked up and messy. It makes no sense. People in mixed mania will describe it as though it's hard for them to think. Their thoughts shuffle from one anxious topic to another. So a lot of this distractibility is going to almost look like depressive rumination because it has high depressive and anxious content. Next comes hyperactivity. And here the difference is really about whether it's goal-directed or not. So in pure mania, they're going to be doing a lot more, but in a goal-directed way, exercising more, moving more. They're physically restless, socializing more, making lots of plans, or starting many projects. In mixed mania, they are physically agitated. That's similar for both. A lot of muscle tension, and that can cause a lot of somatic symptoms and muscle pain. And here's what the patient will say. They feel driven to do something, but they don't know what to do. It's that depressive sense of anhedonia like nothing matters, along with a manic sense that you have to do something. The patient may pace from room to room or go on random walks or drives. In one study presented at this conference, they put a Fitbit-like device on patients with bipolar disorder and the ones in mixed states. It was interesting if you saw the picture. They were just moving all around in random circles, not getting anywhere. The ones in pure mania were moving from place to place. Finally is impulsive behavior. And here the key difference is that in pure mania, they're going to be impulsively creating things, and in mixed mania, impulsively destroying things. When you ask about this question, you want to give behavioral examples like they did in the Amish study, because patients usually don't identify with the word impulsive. They think that their behavior is rational and makes sense. So give examples like for pure mania, spending more money, driving faster, sudden travel plans, starting new relationships or projects, saying things that they regret. That's a common one. Sex, gambling, drug use, or just crossing societal, moral, or legal lines that they normally wouldn't cross. And here are some examples from the bin of mixed mania. Reckless, destructive actions. So instead of starting relationships, they're more likely to suddenly leave relationships or walk off on the job. They're going to break things, have aggressive driving. And when sometimes in mixed mania, they do pursue pleasurable things, that's more common in the pure form. But when they do pursue pleasure in mixed mania, they'll usually explain it away as an attempt to lift their otherwise depressed mood, like, wouldn't you go out eating lots of ice cream if you felt so depressed? It's the only way I can feel better. So they might do some overspending and call it retail therapy, binge eating, pornography, and as well as substance use, even self-harm. You know, when people cut themselves, it releases endogenous opioids, so it actually releases pleasure as well. And the darkest state of impulsivity is unfortunately extremely elevated during mixed states. In fact, it's one of the highest risk factors for that. You know what I'm talking about. Suicide. That's the impulsive action you want to watch out for in your patients with mixed states. Mood experts know that bipolar disorder is easy to miss, so they use all of these tools and get input from relatives 
in making the diagnosis. When I first started practice 20 years ago, I didn't believe in the high rates of bipolar disorder that people reported with this kind of structured testing. So I downloaded the tests and tried them out myself. After a few years, about 40% of the depressed patients in my outpatient insurance-based private practice had some form of bipolar disorder, which is right in line with the dozen or so studies on the matter. Here's what you can expect based on those studies in your own practice setting. In primary care, the rate of bipolar disorder with structured testing is 20 to 30% of those with depression. In outpatient psychiatry, 30 to 40%. In hospital settings and treatment-resistant depression, 40 to 60%. And now for the study of the day, a cognitive biotype of depression by Laura Hack and colleagues. Last September, we interviewed Stanford's Charles D. Battista, and he shared with us that cognitive problems are a marker for treatment resistance in depression and may even be a unique subtype of depression. Yeah, there's, there's little doubt that treatment resistance means that there's something different about that depressive episode. And we're a long ways from understanding the pathophysiology of various subtypes. But, you know, most patients with depression have some cognitive deficits in executive functioning or, or, you know, verbal memory and other cognitive domains. But it really varies as a matter of degree. And and to some extent, it's related to to severity as well. And some of the studies that we've been involved with, we've used a kind of simple computer touchscreen that allows for some rapid cognitive testing. You know, some of that work has been spearheaded by one of our faculty, Leanne Williams. I mean, it was notable from those studies was just how poorly those patients did on standard antidepressant treatments when, when there yeah, were more cognitive deficits that were noted. In this new paper, Dr. DeBaptista's colleagues at Stanford have proposed a unique cognitive subtype or biotype of depression. It's marked by 1. Slow processing speed, 2. Insomnia, 3. Poor psychosocial functioning, and 4. This one is a brain marker reduced activity in the cognitive control circuits on fMRI imaging. These patients also had more problems with response inhibition on the go-no-go task. That's a simple test that you can do in your office. Just tell the patient to do the opposite of what you do. Specifically, they tap once every time you tap twice, and they tap twice every time you tap once. So all you need is a book or a desk to tap on. Any errors reflect a problem with the frontal lobe's ability to inhibit responses. Your patient can test further for cognitive problems at home with the Thinkit test, a live-action app that is free online and validated in depression. Just Google the misspelled word Thinkit, T-H-I-N-C hyphen I-T. This problem, this so-called cognitive subtype, 
can occur in the young and the old. In this particular study, the average age was 38, and all were under age 65. So here's what they did in the study. They looked at how this subtype fared in a large randomized controlled trial of three antidepressants, escitalopram, Lexapro, sertraline, Zoloft, and venlafaxine, Effexor. One out of three patients in the study met criteria for the cognitive subtype. And as Dr. DeBaptista predicted, those with the cognitive subtype had a worse response to the antidepressants. But it wasn't all or nothing. 39% in the cognitively impaired group achieved remission, compared to 48% in the other group. Unfortunately, none of the three antidepressants stood out as a better option for this cognitive subtype, but some recommend TMS therapy, transcranial magnetic therapy for this type. TMS also does improve cognition, and possibly vortioxetine, Trintelix, which has some evidence to improve singular cognitive measures. Another option is augmentation with modafinil, provigil, or armodafinil, nuvigil. Behavioral approaches that improve cognition and depression, like aerobic exercise, Mediterranean diet, and CBT insomnia, are also reasonable options. But honestly, so far, we lack studies in this specific but tentative phenotype to tell us what to do. Every day, Dr. Aiken posts a practice-changing study on his LinkedIn and Twitter feeds at Chris Aiken, MD. And Kelly Newsom has a LinkedIn feed that advocates for the nurse practitioner profession. Join us next week for part two of this series, where we'll bring you 2023 updates on lithium. Earn CME credits for this episode from the link in the show notes and get $30 off your first year subscription to the full journal with the promo code PODCAST. Your support helps us stay in the ranks of other advertising-free periodicals like Ms. Magazine, Outdoor Indiana, and Cooks Illustrated.